Well, I want to, there's a lot of little sub things to say before I get to talking about what I'm going to say this morning. But the first thing is just to reflect on how grateful I am for our volunteers that pulled together the Christmas dinner. Really grateful for all the work that went into that. Um, I stopped by at the end of the day, and that was quite a sopping day. It was wet. Um, and, but everyone was cheerful and happy to have been there. Um, and I'm just grateful. And so I'm especially grateful for Dave at the back. I'm especially grateful for Dave and for his work to pull this stuff together. I mean, you guys are important too, but I'm really sorry. Um, uh, before I get into this, uh, this third message in our Epiphany series, I have a couple little kind of preamble things to say to you. Uh, one of them is just to give you kind of a heads up about where we're going and what we're doing. Uh, when I arrived in December, the Lord had put on my heart the virtues, faith, hope, and love, as the place to begin. That's all he'd given me. And so, all right, here we go. Uh, and then about halfway through December, they were asking me, what are we doing in January, Jeremy? And I thought, well, I guess I should give this thought. Um, and we landed on this, this idea of spending time in Epiphany. And so we had another kind of uh, four weeks to hold our place while we figure out and while we listen. And so just so you know, in, in the coming months, we're going to flip into a book of the Bible. And we're just going to have time reading uh, the Word together as a church. So we're going to flip into a Bible, a, a study of a book. I haven't picked the book yet. That's, um, that's Tuesday. Uh, so I'll pick that on Tuesday. Uh, but we're, just so you know kind of where we're headed in this stuff. Um, I do, as a rule, in case you're curious about preaching, I do like to kind of go back and forth between uh, like theological topics and then books of the Bible. I like to flip back and forth. And it's just the, whatever the accidents of fate or the leading of the Lord or however it came out, that we began with a lot of um, kind of topics and theological topics. Uh, and that's just kind of how it ended up. Uh, and all that to say, today we have probably the most intense theological topic of all that we've dealt with so far. In fact, if you've been watching Elliot's one-minute sermon videos, I'm planning to make his job really hard this week, okay? Uh, but my hope is not to overwhelm you. My hope is to, is to illuminate and for us to grow and walk together through some of this stuff. So uh, we've been reflecting on the season of Epiphany. In fact, we get to today revisit the Magi. We talked about how the light goes on for various people. We began with, uh, two weeks ago, the Magi. Those were those foreign scientists who were the first Gentiles to worship King Jesus. Last week, we looked at the Ethiopian eunuch, who was the foreign official, who was another of the first Gentiles to worship Jesus. Now, one of the things that I highlighted for us last week was the fact that the Magi came to Jesus through their study of the natural world, while the Ethiopian came to Jesus through his study of Scripture. And I called this, I talked about this as a theological distinction between what we call general revelation, God revealed generally through the natural world, and special revelation, God revealed especially through the words of the scriptures. So this week we come back to the Magi because there's more for us to explore in the story of their epiphany. So let's look again at how Matthew describes them in the beginning of his gospel. This is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Where Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
Now, I'm not going to go over the whole content that we outlined about who the Magi are again, but in all likely, these men are from Persia, and as students of the stars, they are also most likely Zoroastrian priests. In other words, not only are they ancient men of science, they come from another religion. So their presence worshiping at the feet of the infant Christ raises an important question. Can other religions lead people to Christ? Is there a revelation of God, our Christian God, from within other religions? This is a big question. Now, I don't want you to think this is simply an ancient question dealing with an ancient text. Some of you may know the story of Nabil Qureshi, who's the young Pakistani-American man who came to faith from within Islam. Now, you can read an account of his testimony in the book he wrote. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's an interesting and lovely little book. It's, an, it's, a, it's a lovely testimony. He sadly has gone on to be with the Lord. He died quite young. At a critical juncture in his search while investigating his own Muslim faith, Nabil had a vision of Jesus in a dream. So a devout Muslim having a vision of Jesus doesn't seem all that different to me than Zoroastrian priests being led to worship a king through a star. It tells me that Jesus appears to be quite busy outside the boundaries of our expectations or our building. He's reaching out to people. Uh, if you read the Nabil book, uh, you, there's a shorter version and a longer version. And I'll tell you, the shorter version's probably better because it's just Nabil's story unfiltered. The longer version is, is <laughs> filled with responses of people anxious about his conversion. They're nervous. And the reason the book is longer is because they're nervous about this question. How is Jesus speaking to other people? Okay, uh, So you'll see that even in how this is presented. So what do we do with Zoroastrian priests and this young Muslim? How do we understand their epiphanies from within our Christian witness? Can other religions lead people to Christ? That's the question we have to ask. Can other religions lead people to Christ? Or there's another question we can ask, what is our theology of other religions? Okay, What is our theology of other religions? I want to be perfectly upfront about the difficulty of answering this question. And in the first place, what we're dealing with is pretty advanced stuff. We're dealing with some high-level theology today. And along the way, we have to dip into a tiny bit of philosophy as we consider the nature of truth. And throughout, there's going to be a real temptation to oversimplify the problem. And we have to resist oversimplifications. It's easy to kind of cut off the corners and say, look how easy this fits together. This is not an easy problem. But let me be explicit about what I think is at stake. The question is far too important for us to ignore it. And I'm convinced that our witness on the North Shore will benefit from careful thinking on these topics. I believe that our ability to represent our Christian claims effectively in our culture depends on us being careful thinkers about some of these tough subjects. So I think our witness is at stake here and how we apply it. So I want to dig in. What's our theology of other religions? There are perhaps two traditional ways to address this question. We can advance on to the, um, there's a couple other things coming. So option one, ready? Option one here is this. Christianity and other religions are locked in an utter and irreconcilable contest. All right? A couple more slides will get us to the utter and irreconcilable contest, and we're good to go. Okay? It is either Christianity versus Islam or Christianity versus Hinduism or Christianity versus indigenous spiritual practices. 
We Christians are winning or the devil is winning, and there is no middle ground, merely a clear-cut, black-and-white distinction between Christian truth and everything else. This is in many ways the dominant response to the Christian, of the Christian tradition. Okay? So there's a good deal of scriptural warrant for thinking this way, and we see a clear example of this in a passage like 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 5. Let's go ahead and get 1 Samuel 5 up on the screen, and then we can follow along with it together. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple, and they set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling in his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered the Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. What's going on? The Philistines had captured the Ark of God. The Ark was the seat where God you know, sat in judgment for the Israelites, and they brought it as a kind of trophy, and they set it in their temple, saying, like, look, behold, our God is bitter, bigger, than, bigger than their God. And they woke up in the morning, and the statue of their God had gone... Okay, and they thought, oops, let's put him back up again. And the next morning they wake up and the statue had not only fallen off, but his head and his hands had been broken off. Now the message is pretty clear, at least the visualization is pretty clear. Yahweh won, okay? In the battle between Yahweh and Dagon, Dagon loses. Now this is pretty consistent throughout the entire Old Testament. Yahweh is in a state of contest with all the other local gods, in fact, in the battling language of the psalmist, they aren't even gods at all. So Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5, makes this explicit. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. In other words, your gods aren't even gods, they're just statues. Okay? And we have to deal with this stuff. So this is a small sampling of the Old Testament. But the overwhelming witness throughout most of the Old Testament scriptures is that Yahweh and other gods are locked in this utter and irreconcilable contest. That no ground of compromise can be admitted between them. And on the strength of passages like these alone, we might conclude that there is no possible way for other religions to contain a pathway to faith in the Christian God. So there's a strong witness that says there's no compromise. So let's look at option two. Option two is this. Christianity and other religions are essentially the same. Christianity and other religions are essentially the same. Now this answer to the question is more obviously modern, especially in what we call this secular age. Since there's no transcendence, nothing from outside our universe speaking into it with authority, there is therefore by definition, that means all religions by definition are products of human imagination. They come from the same source and are therefore equally valid or, as the case may be, invalid because they're all merely human things. Now, like I said, this idea that Christianity and other religions, is ultimately, that they're ultimately indistinguishable, is especially evident in modern thinking, but it actually has some grounding in our own Christian tradition. This doesn't just come from the secular world. This actually, in some ways, is birthed from our tradition. So, uh, consider something Solomon says, writing a letter to the king of Tyre when planning to build his grand temple. Now, this is uh, 2 Chronicles 2, verses 5 and 6. The temple I am going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But then he says, but who is able to build a temple for him? Since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. Who then am I to build a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? So Solomon's thoughts 
have this sudden moment where he realizes my temple vision isn't going to be big enough because God can't fit within an earthly temple. He's busy outside the bounds of our ethical, religious, cultural comfort zone. That's why figures like Melchizedek throughout the Old Testament, the priest who has nothing to do with national Israel but somehow is a priest of Yahweh, they're so beguiling. By all accounts, God is beyond containment. He can't be trapped in a box or held to the limits of our concepts of how things should work. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14, explores this very idea. It says there, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or who as counselor informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? Who can tell God how to think? Whose mind can contain God, Isaiah wonders? Who can govern him? Certainly not our thoughts about God. I have lots of thoughts about God. None of those thoughts control God, can they? Otherwise, God would be smaller than my thoughts. And so we say that God is infinite. A finite thing is a thing with limits, but to be infinite is to be beyond limits. And in addition to this infinitude, there are additional qualities of God we talk about. We could talk about his incomparability or his ineffability. Last week we had the omnis, and this week we have the ins. We'll put the omnis and the ins up on the screen for a moment now. Go ahead to the next because I didn't write it in my notes. We have that God is omnipotent. He has all power. He is omniscient. He has all knowledge. He's omnipresent. He could be in every place. And he's omnibenevolent. He is all good. But in addition to the omnis, we have some ins. Ready? Here's the ins. He's infinite. He's without finitude. He's incomparable. You can't compare him to anything to make sense of him. And he's ineffable. I like the word ineffable. It means he's too big for words to capture. There's too much going on. So we have the omnis and with the ins, both describing God. And if God, the Christian God, is so far beyond our conceptualizations, how can we know that he isn't working in other religions or even every other religion? Better yet, if God is, as we admit, so limitless, how dare we limit his work through our meager understanding of Christianity? Do you kind of hear how the argument's going with this? And in some ways, the, the idea that all religions are the same has some grounding in our own tradition, recognizing how ineffable God is. But it's slick, and it's somewhat slippery that many theologians throughout history have played this game. They say God is beyond our concepts. That's true. And they say that you can't know God fully. That's also true. And then they make this move. Therefore, anything you say about God is suspect. Wait a minute. That part's false. It's true that God's beyond our concepts. It's true that nothing we say can capture all of God. It's not true that nothing we say of God is faithful. And that's where things get slippery. And let me be clear. Uncertainty in one area does not mandate uncertainty in all areas. Just because we have uncertainty in one area about God doesn't cast the entire tradition of our knowledge about God under a shadow. Just because I admit that God is ultimately incomprehensible doesn't mean that I can't know anything about him. That goes too far. <clears throat> Some of you have read the Narnia stories, um, and so I'm going to rely on your memory of the Narnia stories for a moment. In the final one, the last battle, there's an ape. His name is Shift, who's a very shifty character. And he has a friend named uh, Puzzle, a donkey, and donkey is a very puzzled character. And he convinces him to wear a lion skin and to pretend to be Aslan. And Aslan, as you may know, is the Christ figure in that story. As a pretend Aslan, the ape can get all the foods he wants and can bully the friendly animals of Narnia into doing as he pleases. And the Narnians, of course, are a very reverent bunch. 
But the way that Shift successfully hijacks their reverence is by means of something he says that is true. He uses the truth to manipulate something false. In other words, the Shifty ape uses truth to subvert what the Narnians know of their true God. Now, the truth he uses is this. He uses the phrase, Aslan is not a tame lion. Some of you will remember that from the Narnia stories. He's not a tame lion. He can't be contained or controlled. He can't be governed by our ideas. And this is something of a Narnian mantra. Aslan, the great lion, cannot be tamed. But Shift uses Aslan's untamability as a covering for things that are clearly not Aslan. So when, the, when Puzzle demands the Narnians do things that are in violations of their consciences, they follow along because of the mystery of unknowability. It's a manipulative move. Do you see the danger? God is indeed some ways unknowable, but people may use that unknowability as a way to muddy the waters of, of theology and even to silence questions of the faithful. It is a nasty and indeed damnable game. Now, use that advisably. This is the theology of hell. This is Satan's voice in the garden saying, did God not say, and twisting the truth to turn it into a lie. All right, let me say this another way. While it's true that God is ultimately unknowable, this does not invalidate what we know of God. God remains incomprehensible, ineffable, infinite. But that doesn't mean that the ways God has revealed himself are false. It only means that we have to be careful how we cling to and deploy these truths we have learned about God. Now, as I said, this is high-level theology. Hope we're doing okay. We're halfway there to where we're going this morning. So we have two options for how to respond to other religions, both in some ways grounded in our Christian scriptures. Uh, I've got a little sliding scale we'll put up here. On the one side, we have an issue of pure contest, utter and irreconcilable contest between Christianity and other religions. On the other side, a story of sameness. Well, God's unknowability means we can't really know what's going on in other religions, and so we probably can't say anything at all about these things. So here's the question. Where do the magi fit on this scale? Like, where do we plot them, right? Or where do we plot uh, Nabil Qureshi's story? Or where does Melchizedek fit in this story? And this leads us to option three. Option three for the story of Christianity and other religions is this. It's complicated. Okay? It's complicated. There's something going on where the Magi can find Jesus from within Zoroastrianism and where Nabil can find Jesus from within Islam. It is neither the case that the contest is irreconcilable, nor is it the case that all religions are the same. And in point of fact, we have key scriptures to support this kind of middle position as well. And the most important of these is probably John 10, verses 14 to 16, where Jesus says the following, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know my Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, here's the key verse. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So what does Jesus mean when he says there will be other sheep? Traditionally, we think he means he's referring to the Gentiles, which are not the Jewish sheep. And I think this is right, but I need to stress right now that the Gentiles were almost entirely followers of other religions, people within other religions who are waiting to hear the voice of Jesus and respond to it. So how, at this, how is God at this moment reaching out to those sheep so that they can recognize the voice of Jesus? What's God doing to get to those people? 
And the fact that God is reaching out in this way suggests that the relationship of Christianity to other religions is neither this irreconcilable contest nor a blanket equality of religious truths. And I want to suggest this morning that God is preparing people in other religions to hear his voice by means of the truth. So how does this work? How is God doing this? It works primarily because this is the way that truth works, for how God has designed the universe to work. And for the next minutes, I want to talk about the truth, and I want to break it down for you in three statements. So statement number one is this, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. I take the phrase from a lovely Christian philosopher. He's now with the Lord. His name is Arthur Holmes. And he wrote a book of the same title. I don't know that I recommend the book to you. It's a tough read. It took me a long time. It's a short book, and I had to spend a lot of time reading it. Uh, But it's a good book, and if you want a challenge this 2022, I recommend it for that reason. What Holmes means, and what I mean by it, is that if there is truth, and if it really is true, then it is a truth that is ultimate grounding in God. So I need to talk about this for a few minutes more, and we have to talk about the idea of truth. When ancient philosophers talked about truth, they understood that the truth had to be one thing, meaning an integrated thing. It was whole. It was unified. If something was true, it had to be true in all times and at all places. It's not possible to have different truths. If we come to different conclusions about something, certainly one of us is wrong and possibly both of us are wrong in the situation because we can't violate the truth in that way. It's a property of truth that it cannot violate itself. And so we have a saying like, a thing is true when it is true and false when it is not true. Uh, We have a fancy word for this. It's called a tautology. It means you didn't say anything. It's obvious that a thing is true when it's true and false when it's not true. And yet how striking it is today to have to think about the fact that some people think there are truths or true for me or true for you or true in different times. Nobody throughout history ever thought there could be different truths. There was always one truth. And some people thought they had it and may have been wrong about it. So what do we mean when we say that something is true? Well, at its heart, for a thing to be true is a measure of correspondence. Track with me. I think you'll be all right. Truth is a measure of correspondence. A statement or a belief or a line is true to the degree that corresponds with reality. The statement, we are in church, is true if it corresponds with reality. I want to propose to you, we are in church is a true statement because it's reality. The statement, we are on the earth, is true because it corresponds with reality. We are indeed on the earth. Some of you may think you are not on the earth, and um, I encourage you to seek prayer. Um, (laughs) If I draw a line, the line is true so far as it maintains its property of being a uh, a straight line between two points. If it curves or bends or is jagged, it's not a true line. It has to correspond with the reality of what a line is. Truth measures correspondence to reality. So as philosophers over time began to think more about reality and about truth, and especially about the difficulties of language, they came to nuance these understandings quite a bit. And the process, they incorporated a greater sense of maybe, let's call it, intellectual humility about these things. They recognized that there was no way for us to say everything that could be said about something. A statement is true when it corresponds to reality, but no statement captures the whole of reality. I'm going to try and explain this by using an illustration one of my mentors uh, uses for me. So this is a pen. This is a true statement. I can say lots of true things about this pen. It's made of bamboo. It's about six or seven inches in length. It has green ink. Okay? 
Uh, it weighs so many grams, and I purchased it in Scotland. All these things are true, but you know what? There's so many more things I could say about this. I could talk about its molecular composition. I could describe the origin of its ink, where it came from. I could talk about its geo, um, geolocational position in the galaxy. I could describe the person who made the pen. I could talk about the different things I've written with the pen, mostly my notes prepping my PhD <laughs> came from this pen. I could talk about the things I might want to write with this pen in the future. Do you understand? There's more and more things we can say. We can always clarify, expand, and develop our truth further. The new truths we learn don't invalidate the old truths, but truth is this kind of ever-widening understanding of correspondence to reality. And it gets more and more difficult the further we go. The point is this. I can speak endless number of true words about the pen, but very few final words. And the new words don't invalidate the old ones, but they texture and illuminate them further. And the point of the exercise is to clarify our posture with respect to the truth. I can say all sorts of true things, but there will always be further illuminations, clarifications, and perspectives that enhance our understanding of the truth. And they always adjust us and align us more with reality. So um, let's go from philosophy back to Bible for a second. This concept of correspondence makes Jesus' most famous statement about the truth all the more striking. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, this is without doubt one of the most preposterous claims in the entire New Testament. I am the truth? How can this possibly be? How can the truth be a person or personal in that way? It doesn't make sense. Except if truth is correspondence to reality, then what we encounter in the person of Jesus is the clearest and most perfect correspondence to ultimate reality. When you look at Jesus, you're seeing the Father. And that's breathtaking. And I want to propose to you that John's hearers found it breathtaking as well. Oh, when I look at you, I'm seeing what's behind everything. Perfect correspondence? It's astonishing. It's because truth is correspondence to this ultimate reality that all truth is God's truth. Anything we encounter in any field of life, in any branch of human experience, if it has any correspondence to reality, it must correspond in however distant and vague a way to the reality of our Creator God. If it has truth in it, it's connected to our God somehow, irrespective of where it comes from. Now, this feeds into a second statement. So statement one was all truth is God's truth. Statement two is this. It's a little more theological, but I think you're good for it. The relationship between general and special revelation is mirrored in that between other religions and Christianity. Okay? The relation between general and special revelation is mirrored between other religions and Christianity. This is theology. If it goes in one ear and out the other ear, that's okay. Let's do our best. Christian theology holds, like I said, that there is a general or broad or expansive revelation of God throughout the created world, and we hold there's a special revelation of God throughout the words of the Scriptures. Okay? You can learn something about God by studying sunsets. You can really learn about God by studying His Word. And to remind you, this is the distinction we've built over the last few weeks together. What I'm suggesting is that here is a similar relationship between other religions and Christianity. That because the nature of truth is correspondence, other religions possess some avenues, however obscured they may be, to the truth. 
At the same time, we hold as in faith that the perfection of truth is revealed in Christ Jesus. And so I'm suggesting the knowledge of God is as diffused throughout other religions as the potential knowledge of God is diffused throughout the sciences. It's not guaranteed, but it has potential. At the same time, I'm stressing that in Christianity, there is a special unveiling of God. It's a different kind and potency which leads us to faith. And in fact, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit next week. So let's clarify further. What do I mean when I say there are truths in other religions or truth in other religions? I mean that elements in every other religion, inasmuch as those elements correspond to reality, must correspond to the ultimate reality, which we know in Christ Jesus. When other religions reflect on aspects like purity or the human condition or spiritual practice or a life of faith or the nature of transcendence or the longings of the human heart, if those reflections correspond to reality, then it is in the nature of truth that some of those correspondences will align with ours. There is truth in other religions, no matter how obscured. Now, this leads critically to the third statement, which is this. Truth in other religions is proto-evangelistic. That's another one of my favorite words, proto-evangelistic. You're Brendan going, oh, man. It means it precedes evangelism. It means it's the seeds of God laying ahead so that when people hear the good news, they respond in faith to what God has been doing in their hearts. And so when we encounter something true in another religion, whether it's the desire to seek God faithfully in Islam or the desire to look for meaning in the universe in Zoroastrianism or the desire for purity in Hinduism or the desire for shalom present in certain forms of indigenous spirituality, that truth, inasmuch as it corresponds to reality, is, I believe, a means of God communicating himself to others. Now, this means that our job in engaging other religions is to find those truths and accent them and highlight them and illuminate them so that the potential for coming to the knowledge of Christ can be activated in that person. C.S. Lewis, in his own tortured journey to faith, found himself exploring an array of religious and philosophical options before him. And after he'd resolved the crisis, he wrote about it in a little book called The Pilgrim's Regress. If you're going to read one book by C.S. Lewis this year, don't read this one. Okay, it's not, it's not his best work. It's, almost, it's great stuff, it's great theology, but it's not his most readable. In the preface to that book, though, he wrote about the process of searching and how in each back to, aspect of his search, he found parts of the truth, but not the whole, and how those aspects whetted his appetite for more truth. And reflecting on that experience, here's what Lewis wrote. Lewis writes this, How if there is a man to whom those bright drops on the floor are the beginning of a trail which duly followed will lead him in the end to taste the cup itself. So Lewis was the man who was walking around and searching for things, and he kept seeing bright drops in his reading, and they seemed to point in a direction. And he said, how if there is a man like me who's following the drops to get to the cup where God has been spilling his own knowledge throughout the rest of the world? God's busy outside our expectations and our building and what we're doing. He's scattering the knowledge of himself throughout the world. And there are people who are hungry to find the cup. And within their dispositions, they're hungry to find the food that God offers. When we view the relation of Christianity to other religions as a pure contest, I think we run roughshod over those places where God has carefully planted seeds of the knowledge of himself. I think we're, we're trampling small plants where God is intending to grow fruit. 
And when we treat all religions the same, I think we diminish the glory of Christ who reveals the truth of God so perfectly. So let me sum up. Between contest and equality, there's a third way, a complicated but good way, one that's rooted in our understanding of the truth, a truth that is matter of correspondence with reality, with ultimate reality, with the character of God, who is summoning all people to himself through any means available, but most clearly and especially in the revelation of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have some final but important notes. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. What does this mean for us? on the North Shore for our Christian faith, for our witness to Christ Jesus, all right? Four brief things. Number one, take it easy, okay? Take it easy. Our posture towards other religions or toward the reigning secularism does not need to be combative. When we encounter other ideologies, we don't have to begin in a state of fighting. We don't have to demolish their whole belief system so that we can replace it with our true one. Instead, we can come alongside and find those places of commonality, those places of true correspondence, highlighting and accenting them so that we can lead them into the truth. This should create a sense of relief in approaching those conversations. I don't have to win. I just have to come alongside and let Jesus do the winning. Uh, my mentor and my, one of my, my teachers, Jerry Root, um, who's, he's the guy for the pen illustration, uh, he sat with a woman once who was seemed troubled, and he talked to her, and he said, what's going on in your life? And he found out she was a Hindu, and he was asking what's going on, and he's asked, how did you tell me about your worldview? How do you deal with things like purity? And she unburdened her heart to him. She says, it's incredibly difficult to find places of purity. And he saw, he saw as an opportunity, he says, can I tell you how in the Christian way we find access to purity? He didn't have to fight her. He didn't have to remove all of her wrong thinking and anything like this. He found the desire for purity in a heart and said, let me show you how we come to purity. You don't have to fight. You can take it easy. Okay, but number two, you've got to know the truth. If you're going to do this well, you must know the truth to the best of your ability, which is to say you must know Jesus. It can be extremely confusing business to explore what is true and what is not true, what is fully true and what is half true. The waters have been unhelpfully muddied by a lot of unscrupulous people. The only sure path is to attend with a quite focused attention to what you know to be true. To put this another way, we need to know the truth in order to spot the not quite so true. Another brief illustration. I'm full of little visual illustrations today, and I won't make you do this. I have, I have two of the older Canadian $5 bills. I have to tell you something. One of these is counterfeit. Okay, if some of you work in banks, don't report me. I've kept it because it's too good a sermon illustration. Okay. If you want to know how to spot the fake, you don't do it by making a study of fakes. You do it by making a study of the truth, the bill that has the metal stripe on it, not the bill that's missing the metal stripe, right? The bill that has hidden watermarks, not the bill that's missing the hidden watermarks. You spot the fake by knowing the true really well. That's how you do it. You don't spot the truth by making a study of fakes. Do you see how it works? It's the same with Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to spot the truth, make a life study of the truth. Okay? Number three, know when to fight. Know when to fight. Everything I've said, and despite the fact that we've moved from contest as our primary mode, there is an, nevertheless an ongoing contest between Christianity and the world. There are places of spiritual possession 
of spiritual warfare. There are places of deeply seated idolatry, of false worship, that simply cannot coexist with the authority of the resurrected Christ. God may be scattering the knowledge of himself in other religions, but that does not mean he will share the lordship of your heart with another God. He's a very jealous Lord in that respect. So whether that other God be money or power or your sexual freedom or any other thing or person or idea, when it comes to idolatry, Christianity points back to the story of Dagon. We're going to break its head off and shatter its hands. No place for this. But fourth and finally, stay humble. We don't always get it right. And sometimes we get it really wrong. And the only way to make sure we're on the right path is to keep seeking Jesus and not be confident in our own understanding. So with that, I pray that may Christ our Lord, the King of Kings, lead us into his humility through the power of his spirit and to the glory of God, our one true and only Father. Amen.